Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 69, The Second English Civil War, Part 4, The Cleanup. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Thank you to my patrons whose support helps keep the podcast going. The House of Lords has been joined by Dan Baron McKinley. Like all other patrons, he can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last episode, we saw the disastrous attempt by the Engagers, Scottish allies of the imprisoned King Charles, to invade England, defeat the new model army, and restore the king to power. Instead, through poor leadership and a campaign hobbled before it began by few recruits and fewer supplies, the Engager army under the Duke of Hamilton was defeated first at the Battle of Preston, and then destroyed at the Battle of Penwick by Oliver Cromwell. Hamilton joined 10,000 of his men as a prisoner, and the best and last hope of the royalist cause in England was gone. While Cromwell was dealing with Hamilton, Fairfax was still spending a miserable summer outside the walls of Colchester in Essex. This was where the remains of Kent's Royalist Rebellion had fled to, under the command of the Earl of Norwich, and they were welcomed by Sir Charles Lucas. Lucas was an experienced soldier, and Colchester was his hometown. The siege had dragged on through an especially wet English summer. Ian Gentles calls it the bitterest episode of the Civil Wars and it's easy to see why he gives it that questionable honour. Not only did it last from the 13th of June until the 24th of August, in terrible weather, but each side of the siege was motivated by bitterness and contempt for the other. To the Royalists, the new model army and the parliament it defended were just a rabble of radicals and revolutionaries who would see the world turned upside down and heresy spread like wildfire. For the new model army, The men they were fighting had not only shattered the hard-won peace, but they were going against the very clear will of God. The idea of providence, that everything happened according to God's will, was very strong in this era, especially among the Puritans within the New Model Army. So by restarting the fighting, 
the Royalist rebels and the king they fought for were rejecting the settled decision of God. These high-level attitudes were bolstered by the nitty-gritty of a protracted siege, with an emphasis on the gritty. The New Model Army accused the defenders of coating their musket balls with sand or excrement in order to poison anyone wounded by them. Everyone I've read on this point only says this was alleged or rumoured, so whether the Royalists actually did this or not, I'm not sure, but the Parliamentarians certainly believed they did. As the weeks dragged on, Fairfax's forces made gains. The river estuary was blockaded by Parliamentarian ships, Colchester's water supply was ripped out, and its lead pipes used for bullets. The suburbs of the town were burnt by both sides, eager to deny them to the enemy. The harbour was captured in mid-July, and then a gatehouse in the city walls was seized. Even though most of this region, and the Colchester citizens, were parliamentarians, Fairfax would permit no half-measures. When the Royalists proposed that a group of women and children be permitted to leave, Fairfax refused to let them through his lines. No matter that they were non-combatants, they were hungry mouths, and for Fairfax anything that reduced the Royalists' ability to resist had to be seized. When a group of women made the attempt anyway, army soldiers captured them, stripped them naked, and then forced them back into the town. Things became more personal and spiteful as the siege wore on. A messenger boy sent from the Royalists was tortured by Fairfax's troops. The ancestral tomb of Sir Charles Lucas's family was found and desecrated. Now I have to assume that none of this was done on Fairfax's orders, it doesn't seem like him but it does show that this siege had become very bitter indeed. By the 19th of August, the Royalists had finished eating their horses and now turned to another staple of siege dining, dogs and rats. Their morale was on its last legs, but they still had hope. The whole point of this resistance was to tie up a substantial force of the new model army while the other Stuart kingdoms rallied to the cause. They'd done their job, they just had to wait for their allies and the Scottish engagers were surely on the way by now, and Irish royalists had made common cause with moderates in the Catholic Confederacy. Help must be on the way. Help had to be on the way. So when the parliamentarians sent word that the engagers had been defeated at Preston and Penwick, and then, as proof, paraded a number of the standards captured from the Scots in front of the walls, their hope died. Whether or not the officers, Lucas and Norwich among them, thought there was still hope, their men did not. Threatened with mutiny, the Royalist commanders opened negotiations with Fairfax to surrender. Like I said before, Fairfax would not permit half-measures, and he was in no mood for mercy. The rank and file, as well as junior officers, were granted quarter, but the commanding officers were only offered surrender at mercy. This term would be well understood by the men it applied to. If Fairfax executed anyone he had offered quarter to, well, that would be dishonourable. Surrender at mercy gave no such protection. It was entirely up to the commander you surrendered to, whether you lived or died. But they had no choice. So on the 27th of August, the gates were opened and Fairfax occupied Colchester. Six of the commanding officers were arrested. Norwich and another aristocrat were imprisoned to be tried for treason by Parliament. The other four did not have the benefit of blue blood, and Fairfax ordered their immediate execution. 
One of the men, Colonel Farr, managed to escape, and another was a mercenary captain whose sentence was reprieved because he was a foreign national. But Sir Charles Lucas and one George Lyle had no escape. They were taken to the courtyard of Colchester Castle, sentenced to death, and then shot by firing squad. The two men were condemned on the grounds that they had chosen to hold an untenable position, causing further bloodshed. Lucas was doubly tarnished, as he'd been captured in the First Civil War, and his release had required that he swear an oath not to take up arms again against Parliament. By fighting in this Second Civil War, he had broken his parole, and thus condemned himself. But really, these legal niceties and allowances for honour aside, their executions displayed the anger at royalists for this Second Civil War, especially for those like Lucas, who had already been shown mercy, only to go back on their word. It also reflects how close to disaster the parliamentarians had been. The Siege of Colchester had tied up almost half the New Model Army's remaining forces for nearly three months. It had been a symbol of resistance for other royalists, especially in nearby London. The stubborn tenacity of Lucas, Norwich and their men gave an opportunity for royalists in Ireland and Scotland to act. This opportunity, bought and paid for with the lives of Lucas, Lyle and countless ordinary soldiers and civilians, had been squandered. On the seas, the Prince of Wales finally arrived, only to be confronted by ships loyal to Parliament under the command of the Earl of Warwick. The two fleets attempted to engage with each other, but the weather and the waves were too much, and when night fell, Prince Charles, cautious that he might lose his ships on the sandbanks, withdrew back to the Netherlands. Warwick would follow Prince Charles to the port of Helvetschlaus, just south of the Hague, and he blockaded the Royalist fleet within the Dutch port. Naturally, the Dutch were ever so slightly annoyed that the English were fighting a civil war in one of their ports, and Warwick relented to diplomatic pressure, angry letters, after a month. In September, the Marquis of Ormond finally arrived back in Ireland. He'd originally intended to arrive many months before, but he'd been delayed in France as he gathered money, supplies and ships. Because of that, by the time he actually disembarked in Cork, ready to lead the combined Royalist-Confederate army to England in support of the Royalists, the civil war in England was effectively dead. In contrast, the civil war in Ireland was still smouldering, and one of Ormond's first objectives was helping Lord Inchiquin, who had returned to the Royalist fold six months before, put down mutiny within his ranks. Some of Inchiquin's officers, fiercely Protestant, opposed the concessions now being offered to the Catholic clergy. By mid-November, these mutinies had finally been suppressed, their leaders dismissed or imprisoned, and Inchiquin's authority over his army was restored. By this point, Inchiquin's battered Munster army was now the main hope of the growing community of royalist exiles in Europe. To Inchiquin's north, the governor of Dublin, Michael Jones, had stayed the course and remained loyal to Parliament, and he was quite prepared to stir the Confederate pot a bit more. After the Earl of Antrim arrived in Ireland and openly opposed the Royalist-Confederate alliance, Jones offered the Earl supplies and ammunition to help keep the Confederacy off balance. Owen Rowe O'Neill, also opposed to the alliance, likewise made a short-lived deal with George Monk, the parliamentarian general in the north of Ireland. By the end of November 1648, Ormond had settled on his offer to the peace faction of the Confederacy. Freedom for Catholic worship, but no public recognition of their rights. 
any changes to the laws, such as the repeal of Poyning's law and the recusancy fines, fines for not attending Protestant Church of Ireland services, would have to wait for the next sitting of the Irish Parliament. Ormond stuck to this position for several weeks, before finally conceding to Catholic property rights, the appointment of Catholics to government positions as well as positions in the army, and the continued occupation of all towns, cities, forts and castles which the Confederacy currently held. The rest would still have to wait for Parliament, but Ormond promised that Catholics would be eligible to sit in that Parliament. Compromise comes from both sides, of course, and in December the Supreme Council stated that, due to the King's desperate situation in England, the General Assembly would speed up the process of approving the treaty. We'll jump slightly ahead to the 17th of January 1649. On this day, the Second Ormond Peace will finally be signed. It dissolved the Confederate government, replacing it with 12 Commissioners of Trust who managed the Confederate territory, and acknowledged Ormond as the Lord Deputy of Ireland. Protestants in Ulster, mostly Scots, agreed to put their forces under Ormond's command too. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Inchiquin warned Ormond that many of his officers were still opposed to the concessions given to Catholics. The Catholic clergy were themselves deeply divided, and even with the papal nuncio Rinaccini's influence on the wane, O'Neill still refused to agree to any treaty which the nuncio did not agree with. Rinaccini would soon leave Ireland, never to return. In all, the Second Ormond Peace bound together a very questionable mix. Protestant royalists, Ulster Scott Covenanters, moderate Catholics, all of which had very good reasons for doubting the alliance they had now made, with only the thinnest of bonds tying them all together. While writing these episodes on the Second English Civil War, one thing kept running through my mind. It's a scene from HBO's Game of Thrones in the first season, when it was good. The scene is actually a show original. It wasn't adapted from the books, but like I said, it's the first season, so it's actually a good addition. It's a conversation between King Robert Baratheon and his wife, Cersei Lannister, and they're discussing the danger posed by a pretender who intends to arrive at the head of a large army. If you've seen the show, you probably know the scene I'm talking about. Cersei is trying to explain away the danger this army would pose, and one of her points is that, yes, this pretender might have a large army, but they'd still outnumber it. They could call on the manpower of seven kingdoms. Robert, an experienced war leader, asks her what is the bigger number five or one. Cersei obviously says five. Robert holds up an open hand of five fingers and compares it to a single closed fist. He says, one army, a real army, united behind one leader with one purpose. He then says that the men he could call on all had different objectives, different priorities, different purposes, and any unity they originally had, the united cause which had put Robert on the throne in the first place, had died with the tyrant they'd overthrown. The new model army, under its united leadership, took on forces which usually outnumbered them in each engagement, and in total numbers the Royalist coalition vastly outnumbered anything Fairfax or Cromwell could call on. But each time, the unity and discipline of the new model army defeated the fractious Royalist forces, even when outnumbered two to one or more. King Robert might have had some helpful advice for King Charles, who believed he could call on the manpower of three kingdoms to crush the rebel army of one. Maybe he could have asked him, which is the bigger number? Let's give the Royalist cause an autopsy. The key to a Royalist success was the Scottish invasion, 
and as we've seen, that did not go well. It certainly didn't help that Musgrave and Langdale jumped the gun in capturing the border, or that rebellion broke out in Wales and the southeast months before Hamilton was ready to invade. These issues of coordination allowed the New Model Army to address these threats in turn, in order of priority, while the engagers were still on the other side of the border. The complete absence of unity within the engager royalist force when that invasion actually took place didn't help either. Not just between Langdale's English royalists and the Scottish engagers, but within the engager leadership itself. Hamilton had no backbone and could not control his officers. Callender repeatedly and incompetently overwhelmed his commander. Monroe refused to serve unless he was treated like a lieutenant general himself. But coordination was far from the only problem. The Northern English did not rally to the king's name in the numbers expected. Langdale and Musgrave did build up some forces, but the North was meant to be a royalist haven, and the number of those joining up was far below expectations. When the engagers crossed the border, they alienated even more local English, and there were very few local recruits to replace the deserters and other losses. Part of this comes from general anti-Scottish sentiment from the Northerners. Centuries of warfare between the two kingdoms, not to mention the reaving, which had only recently, a few short decades, been suppressed, did not lend itself to cross-border friendship. The immediate memory of years of Scottish occupation during and after the First Civil War didn't help either. The only thing that might push the Northern English to join Hamilton was a desire to fight for the king, but that only went so far. After all, that king had just invited a rampaging foreign army into the kingdom, soldiers from which just stole your chickens. This was not winning hearts and minds. But it wasn't just the failings of the engagers which spelt the campaign's doom. We have to credit the better strategic and tactical skills of Lambert and Cromwell. There was no humming and harring from them like there was with Hamilton. An example was Cromwell's decision to cross the Pennines, cutting off the engagers from Monroe and the border. This could have been a dangerous position to place his army, but Cromwell was confident, and his confidence was not misplaced. Compared to Hamilton, changing his mind whether to fight or flee multiple times in a single battle, and it's not even a contest. The parliamentarian decision-making was aided by their better knowledge of the geography, with much better reconnaissance and intelligence gathering, complemented by willing local support. The New Model Army had a good idea where the Engager forces were almost the entire time, whereas the Engagers wouldn't know where Cromwell's army was if it marched up and started shooting at them. Which it did! And it still took Hamilton most of a day to notice. Speaking of the New Model Army, we have to credit the rank and file as well as the lower officers. By orders of magnitude, they were more experienced, better trained, and better disciplined than the bulk of the Engager army. Hamilton's best troops were probably Monroe's veterans of the Irish War, but he never got to use them because of his failure to control his subordinates. Instead, most of the forces he had to hand were under-trained conscripts. Even Cromwell and Lambert's militia support, so not the standing professional army, but the county militias which rallied to them, acquitted themselves very well. If anything, this was exactly what the militias were for, defence, on home turf, against a foreign invasion. And if fighting to defend their home wasn't enough motivation, the new model army and the militia forces were very well supplied, especially in contrast to the engagers. Gentles credits the, quote, unspectacular work of parliamentary committees and state servants, end quote, who had ensured that England's armed forces remained armed, fed, and mostly paid. 
Throughout all the Second Civil War, the forces under Fairfax and Cromwell were well supplied, whichever fire they were rushing to put out. As Gentles also puts it, quote, Fairfax, Cromwell and Lambert then deployed these resources to best advantage by concentrating overwhelming force at a single point while exploiting the geographical dispersion of their foes. Because that was, of course, one of the greatest weaknesses of the Royalist coalition. They raised substantial forces all across the Kingdom of England, but these forces were all across the Kingdom of England. Kent, Essex, Suffolk, South Wales, the North, all erupted into rebellion in 1648, but they rarely coordinated or combined forces before the hammer of the new model army came down on them. Smaller riots and civil disturbances, which could have escalated into similar armed rebellion, were all spread out, often isolated, often spontaneous, and so relatively easily put down. This all meant that by the time the engagers were ready to invade, and ready is definitely a questionable term here, most of the English royalists had been suppressed, and the rest were clinging on in Pembroke, Colchester and Pontefract. They were in no position to help Hamilton, and instead were praying that he was on the way to help them. And finally, the reason for the engagers' delay was their opponents in Scotland. The resistance of the Kirk party, the opposition of Argyll, and the general resistance and reluctance of key Covenanter Scots were just as important as any of these other factors in explaining the Royalist defeat in the Second Civil War. Argyll and the Kirk weren't able to prevent the invasion. They were forced out of power, and outright resistance was quickly dealt with. But through their efforts, the engager course was weakened and delayed. Recruits to the army were not forthcoming. Desertion was rife, taxes were unpaid, and so Hamilton's invasion was delayed until July. And despite the delay, it was still massively understrength and undersupplied when he crossed the border. All these factors combined mean that, after just a few short months, and after all that plotting and negotiation, Charles's plans had come to nothing. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, details. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. When the news of Preston and Winwick filtered back to Scotland, the anti-engagers struck. 
It was a counter-counter-revolution. For the rest of August 1648, the Kirk ministers whipped their flocks into action. God's judgment had been made very clear, and now was the time to throw down the engagers and their blasphemous compromise. A several thousand strong force of Covenanters from southwestern Scotland, especially that stronghold of Covenanter sentiment, Ayrshire, marched on Edinburgh. This semi-spontaneous uprising was led, supported, or soon joined by very familiar names. Lord Loudon, the Earl of Leven, David Leslie, and of course, the Arch-Covenanter himself, the Earl of Argyle. The rank and file of this uprising were dismissively referred to by urban Scots as Wigamores, apparently drawing on the Scots term for horse drivers, so this event became known as the Wigamore Raid. It is also, as some of you might know, the foundation of one of the political nicknames which emerged in the second half of the 17th century and remained relevant until the Victorian era, the Whigs. We'll come back to the Whigs, properly, another time. For now, Whig is just another name for the Kirk Party. With this army marching on the capital, the Engager Committee of Estates sent out a batch of orders. The Earl of Lanark, Hamilton's younger brother, was to gather whatever forces still in Scotland loyal to the engagement and muster at Jedburgh in the borders. George Monroe, who had avoided the devastating defeats of Preston and Penwick by staying miles away from Hamilton, was sent for. He was to leave a body of men in Carlisle Castle and then march to the other end of the border to Berwick, collecting the Scottish survivors of Hamilton's folly on the way. He was also told, in no uncertain terms, that he was not to bring any English royalists back across the border with him. I know they're now strays, and they're sweet, and you promise you'll feed and take care of them, but no. If Scotland harboured royalist exiles, that would simply invite the new model army to invade. And in the current circumstances, that was not something Scotland could repel. With these orders sent, the Committee of Estates abandoned Edinburgh. They had no chance of holding it, and so they fled to the borders to meet up with Monroe and Lanark. So on the 5th of September, the Earl of Leven marched right into Edinburgh, and once again, for what is either the third or fourth time now, Leven captured Edinburgh Castle. The Whigs now held the capital, and they dared the Engagers to try and take it back. The Engagers didn't even try. Instead, when peace overtures were declined by the Whigs, Monroe and Lanark led their forces north, but not to Edinburgh. Instead, they marched around the capital and its formidable defences, and captured the nearby town and palace of Linlithgow. This was a good strategic decision, because Linlithgow lies to the west of Edinburgh, and from here, the engagers could effectively block the Whigs in Edinburgh from any reinforcements from the heavily covenanted Ayrshire and west of Scotland. With this stalemate achieved, both sides agreed to a truce. Neither the engagers, nor the Edinburgh Whigs, or other covenanters, would move any armies around until they all got together and worked out what was going to happen. And then who would turn up out of the Highlands at the head of a large force but Argyll, marching straight towards Stirling? Stirling is northwest of Linlithgow, and one of the most strategically valuable positions in the entire kingdom. It is famously, alongside Edinburgh and Dumbarton, one of the keys to Scotland. Argyle claimed no knowledge of the truce and promised to stop marching and to keep his men outside of Stirling itself, gathering them in the nearby Deer Park. But the Engagers simply didn't believe him. Stirling Castle remained under Engager control, and they couldn't risk losing it. 
So Monroe marched north, personally kicking the door to the deer park open and leading his men inside, right as Argyle was tucking into dinner. The skirmish that followed scattered Argyle's force as the man himself fled on horseback and left his men to be killed or captured. With Stirling now firmly under engager control, they now had a stronghold to match Edinburgh. Better, even, because it gave them easy access to recruits sent from the more royalist north and northeast. For the next week or so, both sides stuck to the truce. Neither side wanted to escalate this into a true civil war, but neither side was too eager to compromise. The stalemate was only broken when Oliver Cromwell marched across the border. He'd mustered his army at the Anglo-Scottish border while corresponding with Argyll and the other Covenanters, telling them to get their house in order, or he would do it for them. Oh, and uh, give Berwick and Carlisle back, please. Argyll and the Covenanters insisted to Cromwell that they were on it, and two of their red lines in their negotiations was the disbandment of engager forces and the return of the English castles. No need to invade, we'll handle it. But Cromwell lost patience, and on the 21st of September, the new model army crossed the River Tweed and entered Scotland. The Scots had intervened in English affairs quite a bit recently. It was time to return the favour. The invasion of the new model army and the profound weakness of the Scottish armies, both Engager and Covenanter, spurred both sides to make a deal. Less than a week after Cromwell entered Scotland, the Treaty of Stirling was agreed between the two sides on the 27th of September. It effectively ended the Engager government, but with the Covenanters holding the capital with the backing of Cromwell's forces, they had no other course of action. But it wasn't entirely punitive. No Engager who accepted the treaty would be punished, although they were to be barred from public office until Parliament met in January. The armies of Argyll and the Whigs in Edinburgh would disband all but 1,500 men by the 1st of October, and ten days later they were to disband the rest. In return, the Engagers would surrender Stirling, Carlisle, and Berwick by the 1st of October. To quote Reed, both sides had very carefully stepped back from the brink, and Cromwell departed satisfied. End quote. Cromwell would head south via Carlisle before moving on to deal with the last few embers of royalist resistance. Because after being captured in the summer, Pontefract Castle was still held by the royalists. It would actually hold into 1649, despite increased attention from first Oliver Cromwell and then John Lambert. The siege involved a lot of back-and-forth raiding over the months, which I won't bog down the narrative covering, except for one notable event. After Langdale was captured by Parliament, by the way, Langdale will be captured by Parliament, in October, royalists from Pontefract Castle hatched a plan to rescue him, and it involves our old friend Thomas Rainsborough. Rainsborough had been sent by Fairfax to replace the existing commander, Henry Cholmley, but Cholmley refused to give up command, so Rainsborough left the siege lines and settled down in nearby Doncaster to wait for Parliament to settle the issue in his favour. What this meant, though, is that Rainsborough was vulnerable, so the plan was to sneak to Doncaster, kidnap Rainsborough, and exchange him for Langdale. The plan went well at first, and the squad of 23 men made their way undetected into Doncaster. Four of them then broke into Rainsborough's quarters. Here, Rainsborough refused to be cowed by the sudden arrival of a lot of armed men, and he fought back. He was dragged out into the street and run through with a sword. The would-be kidnappers fled the scene back to Pontefract as Rainsborough bled out on the cobbles 
His murder would spark a flurry of conspiracy theories. He had, after all, been a leading army leveller, and other levellers accused the grandees, and especially Cromwell, of plotting his assassination. Cholmley's troops had failed to prevent the murderers leaving Pontefract, entering Doncaster, or escaping the scene. Had Cholmley been ordered to turn a blind eye? Rainsborough called out for help at the time, but no one came running. And for that matter, why did Cholmley refuse to transfer the command of the siege? Could he have been secretly ordered to be difficult to place Rainsborough outside the safety of an armed camp? But contemporary investigations brought up no evidence of grandee involvement. In all likelihood, it was just a bungled abduction. Rainsborough would become a martyr for the leveller movement, but his death weakened their position in the moment. Anyway, after constructing the siege lines needed to conquer the powerful stronghold, Cromwell left Lambert in charge of the siege of Pontefract on the 28th of November, so that he could return to London. He had pressing business with the king. With this episode, we come to the end of this mini-series on the Second English Civil War. The fighting is not yet done in any of the kingdoms, but the bulk of it is over. This mini-series was a bit of an experiment, with a new episode out every three days. This was for a couple of reasons. First, it was the best way to cover the conflict in the detail I wanted, without a month of regular weekly episodes or having unusually long episodes. Second, and related to the first, I'm keen to return to look at the wider world and the growing empire beyond the shores of Britain and Ireland, and I know that many of you are too. Third, I wanted to make up for lost time. 2023 has seen very few episodes of PAX, and I wanted to make up for that. Hopefully this burst of content has done that. Thank you to my House of Lords, including the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Marcus of Argyle, Bruce Simmons, and the Earl of Atlanta, Gary. You can join their ranks and receive ad-free episodes by going to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.